to your word as it gets delivered today. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So great to be here. Uh, just a few quick thoughts from my side before we jump into the message this morning. And the first one is about the Connect course. Some of you, if you've been around church a lot longer, you would know uh, just maybe about the concept of church membership. Now, maybe that's a push factor, maybe that's a repel factor or a pull factor for you. But really, uh, if you're interested in church membership, the Connect course is where you are going to find out about all of that. Uh, again, no strings attached. And then finally, the last few weeks, and also over our media, we have been playing a video concerning what's coming up this coming Wednesday, which is our Spirit Equip module. And just for a kind of background around this, we as a church coming out of COVID have realized, wow, we need to think more deeply about what it means to equip the saints for ministry. How do we as leaders take seriously, Ephesians 4, take seriously just the mandate that 2 Timothy 3 gives us to equip us. It's not enough for us to stand on a stage and yell at you guys and then for you guys to give us an internal rating out of 10 and it stops there. No, we need to learn to roll up our sleeves. Maybe receive a little bit of teaching, but learn how to put it into practice. And that is what these modules is about. We've just finished the Bible Read Equip module. And now we're going to be touching on all things concerning the Holy Spirit. And um, our life groups will be doing that. But let's say you're here and you're not part of a life group. Please come on a Wednesday and you'll either have an opportunity to join with your nearest life group or to start your own equip groups. Uh, you will be fully resourced to do this. So, And even once again, if you don't know what this is fully about, come along on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We'll be done by 8.30. There will be childcare. Please let us know just so that we know uh, that we can be looking after your children. And no strings attached, but at least then you have a bit of an insight into what's going on. All right, so as we get stuck into the preach today, how many of you, if we think about our Bibles, and I'm going to show you my Bible side on, the fatter side roughly represents the larger part of our Bible, which represents the Old Testament. Now, I know that many of you, because you've told me you've started a Bible reading plan and you thought you'd start in Genesis, you got through all the familiar stories, the stories you know, the stories you like, and then at some point you got stuck at all the so exciting laws of the Old Testament. For those of you who don't know, the Old Testament has a total of 613 laws that you and I have to deal with. How many of you here in this room, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you here are doing everything you can to adhere to all 613 laws? Maybe you're familiar with what we call the top 10, all right, the 10 commandments. And maybe if I even gave you a mic, you could probably come up with the top 10, all right? But now we've got another 603 to go. And they cover a whole range of topics, including what you wear. And every single one of us in the room right now are lawbreakers because we are wearing two types of cloth. Don't ask me to name them. That's not my thing. All right. And then uh, dudes, unless you've got these long curly sideburns, we are lawbreakers because we're not allowed to shave our sideburns. If you had a bacon sandwich this morning, I'm sorry, but you're a lawbreaker. And if you didn't come to church after having sinned this last week with a goat to sacrifice this morning, you're a lawbreaker. All right, I think that would really confuse the south of Johannesburg if that's what we started doing on a Sunday. There was a guy, I've shared the story with you before, there was a guy, not a Jew, not a believer, but he decided just for fun as a bit of an experiment to see if he could uphold all 613 laws of the Old Testament for one year. And so he did all the food laws, and he did all the clothing laws, and he even did the laws of stoning people for adultery. He used to have little stones in his pockets, and if he knew his friends were watching porn the night before, he would throw little stones at them. But you know what he found out, expectedly? He found out that the laws were burdensome. 
not a whole lot of fun. And he found out predictably that the laws were impossible to live out. Impossible to live out in full. And I bring this up because we as a church have started going through the book of Galatians. We're doing pretty big steps in the book of Galatians. We're going to try and do it in total over eight weeks so that we can move into our Christmas season. And so one of the things that we're trying to just wrap our minds around is we are reminded the scriptures are not written to us. They're written for us. They were written to very real Christians thousands of years ago in the region of Galatia. Paul had planted these churches. He had shared the gospel with them. Many had come to faith. When Paul left the churches, a different group of leaders moved in. These were Jewish traditional leaders who had come to faith in Christ, but they added something to their gospel. They said, listen, it's fine to come to Jesus. He is the rightful Messiah. But what you also need to do is you need to, on top of having faith in Christ, you need to follow all the laws of the Old Testament to be a real godly person. And Paul says right from the outset, Paul's tone in the, in the, in the book of Galatians, as we're going to see today, he's just getting angrier and angrier. And he's really worked up because he's saying, your gospel is not just a debatable issue. It's not just a side issue about which you have your opinion. I've got my opinion. He says it's a perverted gospel. In fact, he says it's no gospel at all. And we're digging into how dangerous this is. Which leads me just to want to point out that as we look through the book of Galatians, and especially today and in two weeks' time, we're going to be talking about the law, the law, the law, the law. As we've already pointed out, no one in this room is trying to live according to the law of the Old Testament. So you might be tempted, you know, in the Peanuts cartoons when they're sitting in school and the teacher's just like, wah, 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 wah. You might be tempted just to get into that box in your brain. And while maybe you and I are not trying to live out the law, we still fall into a very similar error in the sense that we start to believe that what really makes me right with God is my goodness and my right behavior. And if only I can be good and if only I can behave well, then God will be pleased with me. And that is the transition that makes this very old book as relevant to us today as anyone. And so we're going to dive in, and I just want to tell you right from the outset, we're going to do a, a lot of Bible today, all right, because we're doing quite big steps through the book of Galatians. But you know what the greatest thing is? Every single one of you has a Bible with you that you take home. And if you don't, you have something called the Internet, or the app store where you download version for free. And so you can take what we speak about and you can read the verses for yourself. And if you really want to, the sermon is available online forever for you to do a second or a third over, all right? Uh, so we're going to do a ton of Bible. And I'm just going to ask that you do your best to stay with me because I think this is so at the heart of our faith. So let's read. We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, where Paul says this, You foolish Galatians. As I was preparing for the sermon, I, I thought, you know, what would a sermon feel like if I just stood up and said, You foolish Riversiders. You know, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. But I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, Paul does a very unique thing here. A lot of the time when Paul is trying to make an argument, he makes a theological argument. But he starts off here at the beginning of this chapter to argue from experience. You see, the Scriptures say very clearly, and this is what this whole Equip module is about, that when we truly trust in Jesus, surrendering our lives fully to His Lordship, there's a transaction that happens. And one of the many things that happens in that transaction between us and God is that God gives us His Spirit. 
God gives us His power. God gives us His presence. And not only is God now up there and our Lord and our King in a very mysterious but wonderful and beautiful way, He is with me and He is at work within me. And so Paul says, listen guys, when it comes to that, when you first got saved, when you first experienced the joy of your salvation, when you first just had your eyes opened and you saw Jesus for who He was and what He had done as beautiful and so amazing, when you first experienced God's love, when you first experienced God's presence, when you first experienced God's peace moving into your heart, do you remember that moment? Everyone's nodding their heads. And He says, now, how did that come about? Did that come about because you managed to keep more laws of the Old Testament than break? Did that come about because that week you just happened to be a very good Jewish boy or girl? And the answer is, of course not. You see, one of the things that happens at a a genuine encounter with God, when we truly have our eyes open to see who He is, One of the things that marks a a genuine conversion is the realization that there's so much life and salvation that God wants to give me, but there's nothing in me that can earn that. And so it is not the fact that I'm awesome. It's not the fact that I'm a good person. It's not the fact that for the last few weeks I've obeyed all the rules that earns my favor and my right standing with God. Rather, it is His goodness. Paul talks about believing in what we've heard. You know, not only is this idea of my good behavior sometimes a bit of a stumbling block for us as believers, it is equally true for those who don't know Jesus. Now, everyone's got their own story, but one of the many common themes that I've experienced for those who don't trust Jesus is this assumption that The point of being a Christian is to become a good person. Well, I'm already a good person without Jesus, so I'm good. So one of my first responses is good compared to who or good compared to what? I want you to imagine, uh, I got this illustration from a guy called Mike Wing. I want you to imagine that someone says to you, okay, I'm going to judge you on this, but I want you to go and clean your room. Man, so you get out the vacuum cleaner and you put away your clothes and you make sure that the cupboard door's closed. And as far as you're concerned, everything looks spick and span. And now you know that the moment of judging is happening and the guy comes in and you're expecting this praise. Wow, what a clean and tidy room. And instead he pulls out these satin white gloves and starts running his finger along the countertops and the windowsills and the blinds behind the tops of the curtains. You see, you thought you had a clean room by your standards until you realize that he had a different standard in mind. And so when we say I'm already a good person, therefore I don't need Jesus, whose sole purpose in life is just to make me into a good person, by what standard? Maybe compared to your neighbor, maybe compared to you know, the, the brother or sister or in your family that's treated as a black sheep, maybe compared to those really bad people you know, on the news headlines, maybe compared to them, you're a good person. But when we realize that the scriptures talk about goodness in a completely different way, that's when Jesus says, don't call me good. Because the goodness that God is talking about is perfection. And so when we realize that, okay, compared to those people, I'm good. But compared to the person of Jesus Christ, Man, that gap is so big. And that is when we start to realize, listen, the Scriptures aren't here to kind of tell you, oh, you're such an evil person, you're such a wicked person, and without Jesus, you're just horrible all the time. The Scriptures affirm that we're made in the image of God, that God has purposes and goals for us in in this life and for the next life. The problem is we never are able to fully actualize those. Why? 
Because we are our own worst nightmare. We are our own problem. Somehow, the more I try, the more I fail. And somehow, the more I realize what these standards truly are, the bigger the gap is I begin to realize between me and where God wants me. And a true conversion to Jesus Christ is not the realization that one day I will be good enough, but rather I will never achieve those standards. But there is someone who was, and that is Jesus Christ. He lived the perfectly righteous and holy life. And the invitation is for me to simply recognize I will never do that. And so Jesus, I trust in not my life and my goodness, but your life and your goodness. And so we realize this is what the Bible calls grace. That the gift of salvation is exactly that. It is a gift. It is not like a salary that is earned or a favor that is merited. Rather, it is I have nothing to offer you, God, and yet you give me everything. So Paul says, listen, remember that. Cast your mind back to that moment when you realize that what God wants to give you is only received by faith in Christ. Let's go to verse 3, how Paul develops this argument. He says here in verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, because they're all going, yeah, yeah, that is how it started. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He's saying, listen, if receiving the gift of salvation wasn't because you're an awesome, good, well-behaved Jewish boy or girl, why is it that you're now moving away from what God wants to give you, which can only be received by faith? Why are you now trying to somehow earn God's favor with you? It makes no sense. If being a good person doesn't save you, it's also not what keeps you saved. See, these are people who, yes, at some stage, five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, had a genuine saving encounter with God and just realized God is for me. And the way God demonstrated that is, is by His Son coming into this world, living the life, bringing the kingdom near, showing me His Lordship, taking my sin and my failure upon him and giving me his life. And I realized that and I submitted to the Lord in that way. But then something over the years started to shift. And I stopped believing that God just wants to give me the gift of life and ongoing life. And I started to believe that that is fine for my salvation, but now I need to earn the pleasure of God with my good works and sticking to the rules. Listen, I just want to say up front, Paul's not against us being good people. Paul's not against us kind of sticking to the rules. The problem is when we look to the law and being a good person and obeying the rules, when we look to that for the things that only God can give us. Do you understand the difference? It's not our behavior of being good people that Paul is upset about. It is when we look to my goodness and my behavior to give me what only God can give me. And this is why Paul says, man, this seems like such a small nuanced thing. And in the world of the heart, it can be. But Paul's saying those two are a universe apart because one's a false gospel and one is the true gospel. So let me show you what this can kind of look like. I don't know if you've had this experience. I most certainly regularly have this experience where you rock up to a place like this a church on Sunday, and you start just singing, and oh man, you can feel the Lord's presence, you can feel the Lord's pleasure, and oh, you're just enjoying being amongst God's people and singing the Lord's praises. But if you had the presence of mind to maybe audit your emotions, maybe if you're honest, you realize, yeah, the Lord is good. But the real reason why I feel so good today is because this last week, I was such a good person. 
you know, loved my wife, loved the kids, read my Bible every day, prayed every day. And somehow in my heart, oh, the Lord is so good. The next Sunday comes and you're sitting in church and you're looking around you and everyone looks like they're so enthralled by the presence of God and yet you just feel so condemned. And you just feel like God's not there and God's not real and God doesn't love you. And once again, if you had the presence of mind to audit your heart, you'd maybe realize it's got nothing to do with the goodness of God or the presence of God, but rather the fact that you had a bad week and you did kick the dog and you did fight with the kids and you did fight with the wife and you did get up to a bit of nonsense. And for that reason, you're the one who is determining how you feel about God's presence by your behavior, either positively or negatively. Now listen, this can be so deceptive. I grew up in a Christian household. I grew up in a pastor's family. When I went to high school, I didn't do the typical big, bad, naughty stuff. Right, and I felt good about it. In fact, I felt better than those who were getting up to all that kind of nonsense. The only difference was I was doing that in my mind and my heart on repeat all the time and in the quiet place. But I was so deceived because I wasn't this big, bad person. I'm good with God so deceived around these kinds of things. Listen, God is not pleased with you, ultimately pleased with you. Of course, He wants to be pleased with your life. But when I say ultimately, you do not encounter the pleasure of God based on your goodness, either to be saved or now as a child of God. If there's one phrase I would love every single one of you to memorize, that's not in the Bible. It's this phrase by Timothy Keller who says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Why? Because how much does the Lord love the Son fully? Well, that's how much He loves you. How much is our Father pleased with the Son. Well, if we're in Christ, that is how He is pleased with you, and that is the gospel. Now, we're going to move on here from verse 4. Paul says, have you experienced or suffered so much in vain, if it really was in vain? And so again, I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or once again, by your believing what's you heard. Now, Paul is going to move from an argument from experience to a theological argument, as once again, these verses are reaffirming that when God is at work amongst us, when we do truly encounter God's good gifts, can I say, God healed my family member, or God opened up this door of opportunity for me, or, or God was so gracious to me because I was so well behaved? No, of course not. It is because He is a good Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. But moving on to the more theological arguments, Paul starts off in verse 6 talking about Abraham. So also, Paul's developing this argument, so also Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, track with me here. For a Jew, if you had to ask them, who is the big person other than the Lord himself at the center of your faith? They would say, oh, Abraham. And how do you know that God is pleased with you? Well, I am an ethnic son or a daughter of Abraham. That makes me one of God's covenant people. And that helps me know that I am in God's good pleasure. And the implication is, therefore, that those who are not an ethnic son or a daughter of Abraham, well, they can't be in God's good pleasure. Well, Paul says, okay, fine. You want to talk about Abraham? You want to use Abraham as your argument? Well, let's go there. So he says in verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. We're going to unpack this in a second. 
those who have faith. Scripture, the very scriptures, by the way, you guys are quoting against me, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, meaning make them right with God. And the scriptures announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And it goes right back to one of the most ultimate texts for a Jew, for their national identity, for their religious identity. Genesis chapter 12, where this is what we find, and this is what Paul quotes, all nations, all nations will be blessed through you. So that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. By going all the way down to Genesis chapter 12, Paul's bringing them to the origin story of their identity as the people of God and the people of Israel. Where God said to Abraham, and this is the promise that Paul is going to refer to over and over again here, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And for these people that Paul was confronting, the problem was not that they they didn't believe that part of the blessing. The problem was they stopped at that part of the blessing. Oh, the Lord's going to make us, Israel, into a great nation. The end. Paul says, just carry on reading. Because Paul, sorry, the Lord also wants to bless all nations through you, O Israel. And so the point wasn't that Israel became this place that received the blessing of God, but rather this vehicle through which the blessing of God would not stop with them, but rather go to all nations on earth. These are the very scriptures that these guys are quoting, and Paul is helping them understand just how they have gone wrong in this. And so Paul says, the real children of Abraham are not those who have his DNA, but those who have his faith. And if that is true, that is how you and I can be here today. By having the kind of faith, meaning we hear the word of God and we believe God at his word. That is what makes us right with God because that is what happened with Abraham. So now what I'm gonna do here, if you've got a bigger Bible, you might see there's another section in my Bible It's called the law and the promise. This is kind of a a parallel argument that Paul is gonna use here. So we're gonna jump into that section and then come back to these verses. We're not gonna read all of the verses, but we are gonna see how Paul takes this idea of Abraham a lot further here. And he says here in verse 16, listen, the promises that I'm going to make into a great nation, I'm going to bless all nations through you, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now Paul's saying, now that's what we see in the book of Genesis. Then Paul says, hey guys, by the way, the scripture does not say and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular. See, these people were saying, we are the seeds of Abraham. We are the point of focus of God's blessing and pleasure. And Paul says, go and learn your grammar. Go back to these chapters and notice that that is in the singular. And he says this, this seed singular means one person who is Christ's. In other words, the focal point of the blessings of God coming through the line of Abraham is not the people of Israel, but the seed who is Christ. And if the focal point of God's blessing and promise is in and through the person of Jesus, once again, Paul is speaking to these Jewish believers. It's got nothing to do with your ethnicity. And this puts us on equal footing with every human being on planet earth that we can all access the promise of God given to Abraham through Christ. So Paul moves on and I'm just gonna kind of narrate the next few verses. He, he, again, he's trying to be logical with them. He says, guys, okay, okay, think about it. If Abraham's the big dude that you always go back to, now you're also holding up the law as this big thing we all need to hold on to. Which came first, the promise to Abraham or the law? Because whichever came first is going to take priority. And he reminds them of their own history. Listen, guys, God promised this. We've unpacked it now to Abraham. The law came 430 years later. So how on earth 
Do you conceive that the law somehow trumps the promise given to Abraham? He's just knocking away their argument, kind of like, you know, one, uh, what are those blocks that you pull out? That's a Jenga block, kind of one Jenga block at a time. So he preempts that maybe they're going to ask this question. Maybe you're asking this question. So what then is the point of the law? Verse 19, well, why was the law given at all? And Paul says it was added because of transgressions until the seed. Who's the seed? The seed to whom the promise referred to had come. There's a theologian that, man, if you want to read this guy, you need a nap after every page. His name's N.T. Wright. But uh, he talks about the law and the role that the law played. And he says, think about it. Like when we were, had our kids and our kids were younger and we took them for the first few times, 10 pin bowling, we put up those sides on the alley. And the sides just meant, man, those little kids, they could walk down and the ball's like kind of takes him to his sternum and he's going to roll this ball down the thing. And you know what? He's going to see some pins come down. And it's the sides on the bowling alley, we know, that are helping him, him get there. But he's like, oh, yeah. You know, I got seven out of 10 or whatever. But the point is, at some point, you need to get beyond having the sides of the alley up. And that point, Paul says, is when Christ came. Up to that point, you just needed some boundary lines from the outside that were just going to keep you on track. But now that Christ has come, He's not just this external law telling you what to do, but rather He becomes this person who moves into our heart and transforms forms not only our behavior, but our hearts themselves. And He says that's why we have the law. See, Paul says here in verse 21 and 22, he says, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if law could give you life, then yes, maybe. But scripture has locked up everything under the command of sin. Control of sin. So that was promised, been given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Paul was basically saying his logical argument, guys, laws cannot give you life. Think about when you break the speed limits. You, can, you know the law. You're reminded of the law. You see the speed limit being 60 kilometers an hour. You decide to transgress the law by going 80 kilometers an hour, and then one of our friends on the side of the road decides to step out in front of you. You see, the law can tell you what to do. The law can also tell you when you've broken the law, but the law itself is powerless to help you keep the law. And that is why Paul's saying, this is why we need Jesus. Because here's you and I who are constantly failing to keep the law and constantly failing to be this standard of goodness that we all think we can adhere to. And that's before we even look at the goodness of God. And these laws can tell us what to do. They can tell us when we failed, but they cannot transform your heart. But Jesus himself, when God gives us his spirit, his presence and his power, now suddenly there is a work, a real person within me, transforming me, giving me life, which the law is powerless to do. And you at Galatia, you are cutting people off from that. So now we're going to go back. I told you we're doing a lot of Bible today. We're going to, we've looked at his analogy of you know, the law and the timing of the law. And we're going to go back to verse 10 now. I promise you we're getting there. So Paul says now to continue his argument. For all, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, and he quotes their scriptures. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul is being so clever here. He's turning the old scriptures against them, the Old Testament scriptures against them. The very ones that they're relying on, he says, okay, cool. Let's go look at them on your terms. Your scriptures say that everyone who does not obey the law is cursed. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. 
Because, and he quotes again, he quotes their scriptures, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, and again, he quotes from the Old Testament, the person who does these things will live by them. Paul says the truly righteous people in the Old Testament, he's already looked at Abraham. And the reason why God is pleased with Abraham is because God spoke and Abraham believed God 430 years before there was a law. And he goes throughout a bit of a survey of the Old Testament that the Old Testament itself speaks and testifies to the fact that it is not me adhering to the law that makes God pleased with me, but rather it is living by faith. It has always been living by faith and it will always be living by faith. Once again, such a subtle heart issue Am I living this life because I trust Jesus and the gift that he's given me and the the person that he is to me? And I'm living out of gratitude to him or am I living this good life hoping that God sees me and will be pleased with me? Verse 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because up to this point, if Paul's argument stopped there, the Galatians would be like, okay, well, what's next? Because we're just going to fail to keep the law all the time. We're even going to struggle to live by faith all the time. So where is our hope, Paul? Paul says, well, Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written that cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree. Once again, quoting from the Old Testament, and he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul's trying to say we weren't left helpless in this. You see, because if we're going to try to live up to the law, we're going to fail. But there was one who did live according to every single point of the law. Not only in his actions, but in his heart. Not only the things he did do, but also things that he didn't do. Christ fully obeyed the law at every single point. And though the scriptures say that there is a curse to be upon those who fail to live according to the law, Christ took that curse upon himself. So in other words, the obligation of living according to the law, on the positive side, Christ fulfilled, and on the negative side, Christ took the curse upon himself. It's got nothing to do with your goodness or your achievements. And just by the way, because we're talking about motives here, why do you think Jesus did that? To be a good boy and so that his dad wasn't mad with him? Christ did it to arguably fulfill the two greatest commandments, which once again are actually taken from the Old Testament to number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and number two, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Christ did this because he loved his Father in heaven, and his obedience came from that love. And Christ did this, number two, to love his neighbor. That's you and me. And he did this so that we would experience the blessing that God wants to pour upon us that only comes to us through Jesus Christ so that this blessing and this presence and the power of God can be with us. If you do have your Bibles open or if it's on the screen behind me, I just want you to see these last few verses. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might, this is why, might come to Abraham, sorry, to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I alluded to the fact that for so many people, both Christians and non-Christians, the point of Christianity is to become a good person. Listen, while our behavior is one way that God's gonna be working in our lives, the main point, according to these verses, the main reason Jesus did this wasn't simply so that you can follow more rules. 
The reason he did this was so that you could receive what God intended through Abraham and then through Christ, the blessing and the promise of God. And the way Paul articulates that is that the blessing and the promise, get this, this is what God wants for you above all things, is what Paul calls the Holy Spirit. In other words, the greatest gift that God wants for you is God himself. God himself is the gift he wants for you. God wants to give you his life, his peace, his presence, his power. And all of those things are not gifts that are given apart from him, but they are gifts that are given in him. And those gifts are not only for today, they are for eternity. God's goal for you is to be able to fully receive the greatest gift of all, and that is Him. That is the point. Now, some of us here, the reason why we aren't fully able to receive what God has for us is because on one hand, either some of us are believing the Galatian lie that the way I'm going to get what God wants to give me is through my good behavior. And if only I can be good enough, then I can get what God wants to give me. And Paul says, that's the biggest lie in the world. Or you're on this side. The reason why I'm not experiencing everything God wants to give me in Christ is because I don't have the life that God wants. I'm not living in His will. And so I'm believing because of my bad behavior, because I'm not as good as God wants me to be, I'm therefore disqualified from receiving what God wants for me. And Paul says both of those are the same flip side of the same false gospel, which is no gospel at all, which is a gospel based on your goodness and not the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now, and I know that, that some of you, if you're thinking ahead, would say, so Stephen, does it really not matter? Does my behavior really not matter to God? Well, not in this sense. But you need to come back next week and the week after and the week after because I promise you, Paul is in the middle of this argument and we're going to get there because yes, God wants to transform our lives. He wants to renew our hearts and that's going to demonstrate the presence of God in my life and through my life, through how I live. Absolutely. But it's not because I earned a thing with God. And that is why Paul is so mad with these guys. I think one more thing that makes it so hard for us to believe this is because we say, your love is what makes the world go around. But if we actually think about it, my blood, sweat, and tears is what makes the world go around. Doesn't matter whether I'm at home, doesn't matter whether I'm in the workplace. I need to earn people's respect. I need to earn people's loves. I need to somehow prove myself to the people around me. That is how the world works. And when we don't earn well, when we don't prove ourselves well, we get smashed. So everything in us believes that God's favor with me is gonna be like that. And so our default system believes that God isn't gonna love us by grace and by faith alone. This is why C.S. Lewis, when he was asked, what makes Christianity different from all the other world religions? He says, it's easy, it's grace. Every other world religion and every other non-religious system, it's all about you earning and proving yourself to the people around you or to the gods above. Christianity stands alone in the sense that the way you receive what God wants to give you, his life, his salvation, his grace, his strength, his peace, is by believing him. And then he gives, it's a gift. This is scandalous. Because Jesus said to these kinds of people, when he was walking the earth, he says, listen, prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Ah, That's a way to make friends with these guys, right? It's scandalous. But that is the gospel. 
And that is why it's such good news to you and to me. And so I want to end off by asking a question that as I typed these words, I was like, oh, Stephen, this is, this just sounds so weak. And I tried to rethink these words and rework this question. And I kept on coming back to the, the scriptures themselves and the way Paul frames how we are to receive what God wants to give us. And so I decided to stick with my guns because that's where Paul goes. And so here's the question. Do you truly believe? Do you believe God? Do you believe that the salvation he wants to give you is not based on how good or how bad you've been? That gets us started and now to sustain us. Do you believe that the work God wants to do in your life is a gift from him that's not earned? Do you believe that the way we receive the gifts God wants to give us and the grace God wants to pour in our lives to sustain us has got nothing to do with how good you are. But we trust Him. We believe Him. And we live in accordance to that. Now, I've touched on about 400 different things this morning. I just wonder what God is calling your attention to. And as we do that, let's pray. Father, I I know, and I just want to lay down my insecurities around this, that this kind of language can so easily fall into, yeah, this is such typical Christian language, and it just falls into cliche in one ear and out the other. And yet for myself, I've just become convinced again of how this is truly a matter of life and death. And so God, I, I just want to declare that the gift of your bringing clarity to us this morning and the gift that you want to give us as a church and as individuals, it's got nothing to do with how well I preached today or how good my week was or anyone in this room. It has everything to do with you, your character, your grace, your willingness to give, your wisdom, your timing. It is all about you, God. What you're calling us to this morning is to trust you. Father, some of us feel like we're cut off from your goodness because of our bad behavior. And as much as in an earthly sense that makes some sense to us, we lay that down. You welcomed that prodigal son and his son and wrapped your arms around him. On the other hand, some of us have possibly fallen into pride. And God, you owe me now. Look how well I've been living. And then life doesn't go according to plan. And now we're angry with you, God, because you owe me. Look at how I've lived. And we lay that down. I just wonder if there's anyone in this room or online who is just coming from the angle of, I don't know if I would have counted myself a Christian, but... Somehow I sense that God is doing something in my life. And Stephen, are you saying that all I need to do is trust who Jesus is and what he has done? I'm saying absolutely. But is there more I can do? (laughs) There is nothing more you can do. Don't have to wait until I've kind of dealt with some of the issues in my life. No, not at all. And so Lord, for every single person in this room, would we sense the invitation of a good God, a good Father who loves to give, who loves to give grace. And God, I believe that you've been just dealing with some of the obstacles in our way. And ironically, for some of us, the obstacle is our good behavior or our bad behavior. Father, I pray that even now there'd be a sense of the grace that you give. That you meet every single one of us. 
And Father, we want to just simply realize all I need to do is have my hands open to receive from you. Father, we trust you. Folks, let's just spend just a minute or so allowing the words of the song just to focus our hearts and our attention on what the Lord is doing. And then in a short while, we'll close in prayer. Yes, Lord, that is who you are. We have a fresh vision of who you are, the kind of God you are, and the kind of grace that you want to give us. Thank you, Lord, for the deposits of grace here this morning, challenging our hearts, challenging our thinking, not to condemn us, to, to bring us closer to your heart and the things you want to gladly give us. Father, as we go into this week, let us not fall into the traps that we're so prone to falling into. God, would your spirit truly be doing a work of transformation in our vision, in our focus, in our hearts, as we truly trust the gospel? Because this is good news. This is great news.